0: Welcome to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schronz. Welcome everybody
1: to episode three on IEP Radio. It is May 23rd, 2018. And the topic for today is CIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome and beyond. And I think the focus for today is going to be more about uh, how us IEPs in the field look at CIRS, what, what can we do about it, how can we use it to help our clients, and we'll, we'll try to round out with maybe any latest and greatest information in the world of CIRS. I thought what better way to introduce and to help keep me in check than have the person who helped pioneer it and who's constantly working, although he'll tell you that he has retired from active medical practice, he's very much still involved. Dr. Richie Shoemaker, I'd like to introduce Richie by reading a passage out of his Surviving Mold book uh, written in 2010. A lot has probably changed since that time frame, but this particular paragraph struck me and connected with me in in terms of what we're dealing with, and that's from my perspective as an IEP. It reads this, we are not born defenseless. We arrive in the outer world already well-equipped with the most sophisticated biohardware known to man. Indeed, the most advanced military programs and our best scientists and billions of dollars cannot buy anything approaching this technology. The design of our inflammation-producing immune response system has survived intact for billions of years. It permits us to survive during those first hours in a hostile world and for decades thereafter. Our personal nano army is not passive. Once activated by news of intruders, it is proactive and so aggressive That if its targeting software has a design flaw or has been programmed incorrectly, then it doesn't stand down if it cannot find the enemy. Instead, it begins targeting friendlies. The friendlies, thus targeted, are then attacked by the immune system's warriors, the monocytes, macrophages, and T-killer cells. But the host is the only friendly that this aggressive system can harm, and so it does. That is us. As the attack continues, VIP and Alpha MSH, our self-defenses to this aggression, are overwhelmed and their production is destroyed. By then, our health is likewise in ruins. As Dr. Shoemaker observes in a later passage, like Pogo, we have seen the enemy and he are us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shoemaker.
2: Well, thank you very much, Mike. It's good to talk to you again. And A passage from Ten years ago still seems like tomorrow. So thank you very much for including that. Gave me goosebumps. <laughs>
1: You're welcome. You know, um, there, there's a lot out there in the community on CIRS, and I thought that as, as, a, as an IEP, there, we may not need the 20-year evolution version of, of what it is, but there are so many IEPs out there that do not have a clue of what CIRS is. Could you help explain a brief, maybe bullet point version of what we're talking about here and how it's certainly not an allergy?
2: The name helps us. Chronic means lasting for more than six months. Inflammatory, that means it's inflammation in all its different manifestations, whether it's cellular inflammation of white blood cells or whether it's blood chemicals or proteomics or whether it's regulatory neuropeptides, boy, that'll get you going, or whether it is the detection and response of our own genetic machinery in which we control activation or suppression of genes and groups of genes, they all are working together under this rubric of inflammation. But the response term is pretty important. This is not a syndrome that develops just on its own. What we're looking at is something initiates this illness. And once you're initiated, we want to, if we to we go back to a nuclear reactor situation where graphite rods stuck into this nuclear pile will slow down the development of the heat and the force of the nuclear change. What we don't have are those graphite rods of immune systems protecting ourselves. You already mentioned VIP and MSH. The issue is that this syndrome, a defined syndrome of multiple symptoms from multiple body systems and all of its involvements of genes and and proteomic factors and cells gives us a reproducible uh, response to uh, exposures that can be as simple as a tick bite it could be as simple as eating a fish in a tropical reef. Uh, it could be as complicated as breathing in the mixture, the chemical stew, if you will, what's in inside water-damaged buildings. But despite the separateness of these different routes of exposure and different mechanisms of initiation, all of these inflammatory response syndromes bring about the same commonality of immune responses, so that's that's a blessing in that we don't have to look for 15 different explanations for someone with fatigue. But it also is a curse, not a curse, but a curse, in that there are many other factors that could contribute to illness symptoms that people inside water-damaged buildings could have. So CRS, for me, it got started looking at sick fish in, in the Pokemon River in 1996. Uh, yesterday we finish the final uh, i's and t's on on really trying to define the changes in brain physiology and brain injury that's sorted by age of acquisition of illness so it's it's gone from bedside medicine to molecular biology it's gone from looking at uh, problems with diarrhea to cognitive issues to respiratory problems to joint problems to gastrointestinal issues. It is truly a fascinating illness to work with. But the best part of all is that now our golden era of treatment, we have answers and successful therapies. People who get sick by wet building don't have to stay sick any longer.
1: You have 21 years of rocket ship taking off in terms of what you knew back then in 97 or maybe what you didn't know. Um, And then fast forward to today where it wasn't too long ago where I was at a conference with you talking about transcriptomics. I definitely want to segue and I'll find a way to do it uh, of how we get into the field. But I'm I'm curious then, uh, and yes, I'm setting this up for the audience, How is something like this diagnosed then? I mean, all of this information about what CIRS is, but does somebody walk into um, their Walgreens Minute Clinic, or is there a process that's more than just somebody and their opinion?
2: When I was in primary care, it would not be surprising for me to walk into a room and someone was saying that they had a cold, they had a cough, they had a runny nose, It usually took about seven to eight seconds to figure out whether or not this is more likely coming from the lung or from, say, the sinus. And as such, a seven-minute office visit, which is about all we had, was plenty to not only diagnose, but set up a treatment plan. And you knew the person was likely to get better. There's a problem with medicines and intolerances or curveballs along the way, okay. SIRS is not a seven-second diagnosis. The mean number of health symptoms that adults have is just around 21 out of a group of 37. And the 37 are simply selected because they're seen more than 30% of the time. And most of them are seen over 75% of the time. So if you're talking to somebody, how long does it take to say, I'm tired, uh, my memory's not good, I feel weak, I cough, uh, my joints hurt, but it's not the same from day to day. That's more than seven seconds already, and we're only getting started. The problem with these symptoms is that there's so many that some doctors who aren't used to this are going to say, boy, this guy's a wacko. This is all in the head. I'm not going to waste my time. Let me find a psychiatrist and get him out of my, out of my emergency room. By the way, that's where the term GOMER comes from, G-O-M-E-R, get out of my emergency room. And folks who have CRS very often will get that kind of attitude from physicians who might not care so much and are in a hurry to get to something else. But Dr. Shoemaker, it's more, than,
1: it's, it's more than that, right? I mean, it's not just a cluster of symptoms, although that helps. The Science g- goes way deeper, what you've shared with me about blood markers and things like that.
2: We started, I started with symptoms only, and exposure was guessed at. We spend time on biomarkers now routinely, but initially there were no biomarkers. The CBC, the metabolic profile, the SED thyroid test, immune globulin test, things that people rely on, cholesterol, blood sugar. Think of, when you think of illnesses that are commonly seen, these tests are all normal. What would we do if all our tests were normal? And we had to find in the literature what inflammation is all about and what inflammation brings. And more importantly for the IEP, how quickly inflammatory responses can come on. Because if you have an inflammation response on Friday, you're not gonna feel better guaranteed by Monday. You might feel a little bit better. but If you go back to work and have another exposure, you're adding to the burden of immune response. As time goes by, the illness will change to a chronic illness because of activation, differential activation of genes. Pro-inflammatory genes are ones we don't want. Anti-inflammatory genes that we do want are lost and fall by the wayside. As an aside, treatment involves reactivation of anti-inflammatory genes and turning off pro-inflammatory genes, and we can do that. But the issues in diagnosis uh, you and I collaborated as co-authors on a paper that was published on May 4th. Okay. And to get across diagnosis, counting references was 46 pages. Boy, we're going to be talking all day on just right. diagnosis.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, and I mean, you got, you but, have the, you have the shoemaker protocol, which helps us a, with a lot of that. And obviously as an IEP, we're focusing on one particular step, although it's nice to know what's all involved with what, the clinicians are looking at in terms of what may be causing uh, inflammation or changes in, in gene expression, that sort of thing.
2: You know, it's interesting. The one test that has stood the test of time was the very first test that was found to be abnormal uh, in the first cases of this dinoflagellate illness called hysteria that got me started. And that is a five-minute non-invasive test administered at the bedside without any kind of wires without any kind of electrodes. It's called visual contrast sensitivity, and it looks at the neurologic function of vision. That neurologic function, and remember, there are others we think about near vision and far vision, color, uh, static, peripheral, and motion, but contrast is ability to see an edge. So if you see some, say, someone in Miami Beach with a, the with a white sand is wearing a, a white shirt and a white skirt, and, Gets out of a white convertible, you're gonna have a hard time seeing her (laughs) as she gets out of the car. Right. Or if you're a fire plane in Italy on an overcast day flying low uh, over a ski resort, you might not see the gray gondola against the gray background. That contrast, when it's lost, is lost because of reduction of blood flow. The reduction of blood flow in the optic nerve head and the retina is due to inflammatory compounds piling up. Interestingly, an IEP or anyone can take a visual contrast sensitivity test, you can do it at, uh, at home on your computer if you want, you can do it in an office, We're a little bit more accurate, but the computer versions are pretty good, and record symptoms and visual contrast, and if you meet the criteria set forth on, for example, the Surviving World website, we have published over and over again for the last 20 years, is that we have a 98.5% likelihood That's 98.5% plus 1.5% for false positives and false negatives combined. That likelihood of a CIRS is incredible. It costs maybe a few bucks, but it doesn't uh, cost the $100, and I think 10 or 12 is what what it runs. But you will get an idea pretty quickly as a health professional whether you're exposed and possibly having problems. Doesn't tell you which building, doesn't tell you when, doesn't tell you how bad it is, just tells you that's there. But it's something you can share with your clients because if they're in water damaged buildings and they've got visual contrast deficits, the computer will tell you, you know immediately that your job as not only a consultant, but possibly as a contractor or remediator to fix the building has to be taken to a level above what you would do for someone who wasn't responsive. And the question then comes, how come only 25% of people exposed to water damaged buildings will develop that visual contrast deficit? The other 75% don't. And here we get into genetic susceptibility. It's gonna get complicated pretty quickly, but some people can be in, in Buttress City and just say, it doesn't bother me a bit. Other people will breathe a little bit of Wallemia, and they are cooked for six months.
1: And we see that. In fact, um, not to take away from that example, but you were talking about VCS testing. I got to speak from personal experience, and I I wanted to share this with you, but it looks like I'm going to share it with you on the podcast. Uh, I've actually started using it in the field with uh, folks who either were suspected or confirmed cases of CIRS, and, in fact, um, the kit that I use uh, I was able to use uh, in, in, in Colorado was with a client who we were able to screen the house using some of the uh, QPCR technology. Um, and what's funny is I, I just got the results back today and she had failed in either the C or D columns and her scores um, were fail, fails across the board on the ERMI and the Me, which we'll dive into quick. Uh, so it was a great visual Tool, and we even got into doing experiments I know I, I owe credit to Vince Neal in Australia who's been big on trying to do VCS testing in the field and it, it's a it's a cheap tool especially a very effective one to do just what you said you're not asking somebody to commit to thousands of dollars but it may open their eyes to there's something going on, and are they they the person that can eat a stachybotrys sandwich, or are they the person that has a much lower nonlinear response because they're HLA or they're genetically susceptible, and now we're looking at this through a different lens. So yes, VCS testing, I think, definitely has its place. Uh, It's like anything else. When is the tool going to be the most effective to help the patient answer their questions?
2: You know, it's almost counterintuitive in, in modern American medicine to think that a simple tool that is you know seemingly so trivial is actually so incredibly necessary uh, I, I compare it to a measuring tape and you know when i when i am taking the measure for trying to cut a piece of wood the right you know if you don't measure right you're not going to get the right result but if you do measure right a simple tool is all you need and a handsaw can do just as good a job as an expensive uh, So it doesn't have to be an MRI. It doesn't have to be something electronic. You can just get an idea, is there a problem? Now, if you find a problem, it's a sensitive issue. Uh, Do we want to treat IEPs as health professionals? Well, I'm going to advocate for yes. These are caring individuals, I think, on the most part, who have good brains and good training, and if we let them have the right to ask some simple screening questions. You know, Can I ask you about your symptoms? Uh, do you feel rested when you wake up in the morning is probably the easiest one. And when you hear the word no, be thinking that this could be a CIRS. If they say on top of that, I have problems with my memory, I, I can't remember what, what I just, just read, I have trouble concentrating, be thinking now more CRS is possible. Now, if they come along and they say, I have no cough, I can run up and down a flight of steps and don't have any pain, don't have any of this or that, if they have a paucity of symptoms, well, if they don't have a multi-system illness, then be thinking that it's not CRS. Now, when we had our patent for our treatment approach and our diagnosis approach, the patent examiner challenged how can you say that cluster analysis of finding eight of 13 present defines the risk for CIRS? She says, well, surely someone could have a, a stroke and have a cold and have those two things. And we went through about a hundred different patients before she finally said, okay, I've heard enough. This is fine. <laughs> so, BCS and symptoms together should be part of the realm for an IEP. You're going to look at a water damaged building, but in the end, what what really are you doing by fixing that building? Just making it look pretty for the next inhabitant? Or are you making a safe safe home, a safe school, a safe workplace? I mean, under OSHA law, you know, the employer is required to provide a safe workplace. And breathing in toxins and inflamogens does not define a safe workplace, if you ask me.
1: No, in fact, that struggle is, is very real. And just to clarify... On one point, um, and again, you correct me if I'm wrong on all this, Dr. Shoemaker is not advocating um, the IEP writing prescriptions. What he's advocating is being more proactive in the process and knowing our roles, but understanding that there is critical information in the field that we can collect That's pr- that may very likely be more um, uh, uh, it more helpful <laughs> I was trying to find a more colorful world uh, for the physician who's trying to get the data in the field because like for example, we know or we 're learning that certain the way that the body can react and how quickly it can respond, whether or not you have CIRS or not, can change. And did that patient take a two-hour drive to get to the office where they did the VCS test versus you were able to do it at, on, at the house with the computer? These are, these are things that the IEP can now put in their toolbox. When they are working, you have cluster of symptoms, which can be you, you've already provided the framework for this to be filled out with relative ease. You can send the form to the client before you ever show up to their house, give them to, you know, and, and then review it with them at that time. So these are very relatively painless and cheap, but very effective tools to obtain ancillary data that will help the, the physician answer questions that maybe they're not able to get as, as as real as you are in the field.
2: If the person has not learned about mold and didn't know to call an IEP, which is more common than, than than I than I want, what will happen is that they will have seen a number of different physicians, usually they grab a number of different diagnoses, and somewhere along the way, in addition to psychiatric diagnoses, there'll be chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and depression, and there are things stressful in your home environment. You know, it, you, you'll, you, you get this a lot, but if we look at what the goal of the medical professional is, Our job is to make an accurate diagnosis that's defensible, using differential diagnosis as as the basic approach, looking at what we know CRS does and what we know CRS doesn't. But when we get to the point of treatment, our goal is to reduce symptoms to normal, visual contrast to normal or equal to controls, lab abnormalities equal to controls, and in fact, transcriptomics are looking at differential gene activation needs to be restored to equal controls as well. So that's what the medical professional has as is his holy grail to do but the IEP walks in same the same step and the same stride as the physician because the IEP has got to make the building safe for reoccupancy. You know a lot of people say what's the best test to see about whether this building whether we're done with remediation. Well, we know that if we have just three days of re-exposure, there will be a sequence of lab abnormalities, inflammation markers, inflammation chemicals, that we see turning on. Some, like C4A, turn on in 10 minutes. Some, like TGF-beta-1, turn on in 10 hours. Others, like leptin, is two days. mnp 9 is 72 hours or less. And VEGF goes up then down, and we know full well their changes in clotting, and those clotting changes can make people bleed and nosebleeds and coughing up blood. Be thinking of Cleveland buildings years and years ago. But specifically, if we know that a person gonna be reoccupied and is, is betting his life on on uh, satisfactory remediation, we can show in three days whether the home is safe or not. Now. So that sounds a little, little extreme. You, you have to be tested uh, and go through this rigmarole. We also have looked at qPCR, looking at fungal DNA as the only marker, and tried to sort out what makes sense. Ermi's had some, some controversy with it, but what makes sense as a marker, understanding that there's no one chemical and no one uh, abnormality of uh, toxin or inflammation that we know makes people sick, But can we put on a piece of paper for 150 bucks uh, some sort of definition of activity of water, AW, that's 68% for Wallemia, and a little higher than that for Aspergillus penicilloides and a little higher than that for Aspergillus Versicolor, and then water saturation of 0.9 or higher for stachy and ketomium? The answer is yes, we can. And in fact, the five organisms, Ian Hurts Me Too, Statistically, are ten times each higher in the worst cases compared to the not quite so bad cases. So So you hit on something.
1: Yeah, not to interrupt you. You hit on something that's um, very passionate to me, and and obviously something I agree with what you're saying. Uh, Let me let me back up just a quarter step and say we're we're looking at CIRS cases, people who are been uh, who are suspected or confirmed to have it. We know that approximately twenty five percent of the population is genetically susceptible. And we know, um, and Shoemaker's going to step in if I'm wrong on any of this, that approximately 80% of CIRS cases stem from exposure to a water-damaged building. And, and there's, there's right. something that there's something that keeps on coming up. Um, and and, and you, you, you mentioned Hurts Me, and I want to compliment that. I know that index was in 2011. I want to clear the air, and I got, I got the man himself listening to me. So for those of you listening, it doesn't really get any better than that. Of course, I hope I'm right. When when EPA uh, and HUD and them developed ERMI, it was, it was designed to give some sort of a mold burden to try to determine whether or not um, a, a house had mold or what was the burden of it. And it was, it was kind of represented on a graph. You have a number, and you, you go up to the curve, and you, your scores, score is you know, you're 50%, 60%. Shoemaker, uh, in, in in his research, didn't necessarily care about the curve. What he cared about was whenever he saw uh, scores above a certain amount, he saw that patients who had CIRS or he was working with who he suspected had CIRS were not getting better with treatment. And you could loosely say that if it was below a certain score, um, that it they, they, he did see recovery uh, in certain situations. The 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 first iteration, the and that's the one I'm talking about, was not about the graph. Opinion of so the when you're talking, only, if you're a patient right now any or a client, on or an the agent, They're risk. not talking about additional, additional using a, a graph that was developed by the EPA the I, We, we, we this it was our fault. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented
0: and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our the individual species independent and looking for correlation. Or Fast forward into the, the
1: research a little bit. The second iteration of in 2011, 2011 comes out. has developed um, a much Ultimately, higher. Uh, and a paper and or was written by him and David health health that you can find on survivingvolt.com, um, that additional additional showed this correlation, and or this high level of predictability of an environment that, according to the data and the research, there's a couple words that you don't hear a lot too much from people when you start asking them the technical questions. Be that is as data and research found that these environments that when they scored a certain level were unsafe short, and it, it wasn't a guess it was fact to you, by lack of patient recovery and so we understand that hurts me or ermies are not the only who have taken tool the time and to use, and but they are certain as of to today at 2:37 p.m local time the only metric that we are using to formally diagnose average exposure in a home are there other methods that we use to look? Help us. Yes, we've mentioned a couple of them already. VCS testing. Uh, we haven't even touched the surface of bacteria yet. But understand that the Hurts Me is a very good and relatively affordable tool for that client that's out in the field who maybe they think they have CIRS. They're, they're listening right now and they're going, wow, maybe, maybe I'm one of those 25% centers, But they don't want to invest thousands of dollars. Well, you have great laboratories like envirobionomics in Texas, Mycometrics in New Jersey, who can offer you this kit to screen the home and you're not solving world peace with it. But the data, I assure you from my experience, which is the non-medical angle, does correlate um, in terms of what does a house look like when you don't add the medical emphasis uh, in terms of patients can't recover. Does this problem, does this house just look like It's moldy, and it has a potential source. Did I get any of
2: that wrong? I'm, I'm standing in awe. This is just wonderful. You have answered my question, should we teach IEPs how to do the basic medical aspects? We're not going to make them physicians. You don't prescribe medications. But what you just said is a lesson for, I think, every IEP. You can be proactive. You can certainly... Uh, selfishly build in some protection for liability for not having the job done right by having a marker to use to follow? Why should we limit IEPs just to working with buildings? Why can't we let them work with people in buildings as well? We have health coaches. We have all kinds of health advocates. We have people that are talking about healthy this or that on TV all the time. Why do we restrict IEPs and not let them do what they can do with some simple training.
1: And that's, and that's a great segue into what, what are we looking for versus what do we often hear. And I, I won't, I won't uh, beat a dead horse too much on the average uh, column mold inspectors, but that's, that's probably one of my biggest challenges is when I get the phone call, right, from the, the client who has CIRS. They don't know a lot. Uh, they, they call up a local mold inspector the local mold inspector. And let's assume for this example that that person does have good intentions, uh, insinuating, of course, that that may not always be the case, but we'll assume we do have somebody with the right mind. The problem is, is that person, odds are, will go out there, do a visual assessment, uh, looking for evidence of uh, water staining or damage. Um, Sometimes you'll see limitations. They almost emphasize that it's just recent uh, water leaks that are of concern when we know better. It doesn't matter if the leak occurred today or last year or 10 or 20 years ago, there, is, there are potential exposure concerns. But they sum it all up with a few five-minute spore trap samples. Now, Richie knows my history, uh, or at least some of it when it comes to air samples and this thing on spore trap sampling. And, as I, and, and what I can clearly tell you is that they are limited but they are very not appropriate when you're trying to assess average exposure for somebody with CIRS. And there's an actual scientific reason or reasons for it. For number one, it's limited in that it can't detect fragments. There are much more fragments, depending on the reference you pull, um, anywhere from 320 up to near a thousand fragments for every one mold spore are present inside of a home, obviously indicating that there's a much bigger exposure that's being missed with this traditional sampling. It goes deeper to say that uh, these spore trap samples, um, they can't detect certain species like Wallenia that Dr. Shoemaker just brought up as an example. These things are small, they're hard to detect. Then you get into issues of capture rate and moments of time. Um, You look at the World Health Organization in 2009 when they started talking about the, the number and type of samples needed. Uh, for traditional sampling to uh, assess exposure over time. And you started to realize that people didn't have the budget and the time. So we started looking at this surface dust sample as the metric of choice backed by research. Here's the point. You hire that local mold inspector. They go out and collect a few air samples. They say the following likely you don't have a problem and you're safe. Those are two things that that individual is not qualified or justified to tell you a majority of the times. And so what we're looking at here is, it's not about uh, handcuffing the mold inspectors, or we'll stick with the term in, indoor environmental professional, IEP, hands when it comes to the tools that he or she may use in the field to locate a problem, but dealing with somebody, and I'll try to stay focused with people with CIRS, because you could go on different tangents here, um, you're, you're, you're not solving or helping anybody by going out into the field and saying, yeah, I don't really believe in ERMI. Remember that conversation I just got done talking about with the EPA version versus Shoemaker Protocol and the way he interprets it? We're not talking about the EPA version, and neither is the client that is talking to you. We're talking about the Shoemaker interpretation of that 36 mold panel, which happens to be kind of street lingo referred to as an ERMI sample. And then, of course, you have the Hurts me, which are the critical five that uh, Shoemaker has pinpointed and highlighted. So what we need to see is the the mold in, uh, the un, indoor environmental professional who is not making conclusive statements, especially off of five minute spore tramp samples, who is open-minded to the fact that just because someone had a quote unquote small leak, that there must not be a mold problem. Somebody who is open-minded and understands building science, understands pathways. We think about crawl spaces as a great example of uh, contaminants that could make their way and do make their way through the pathways. It's the plumbing uh, lines. It's the, uh, where they run the wires and the ductwork, Anywhere where there's a gap and a crack and there's a driving force, which is usually the weather, the climate, the wind, the temperature differentials, all these things are in play here. And they can push this contaminant cloud into the environment and it's not something that the more traditional method of testing will detect. In fact, oftentimes it will miss it. And what you're left with is a frustrated client who's been diagnosed with CIRS, Their blood markers and any ancillary data is likely showing exposure, but you have an indoor environmental professional looking at them and saying you don't have a problem. This is an issue.
2: You know, the, the one piece to add to your discussion of the failure of, of, of spore traps and, and air samples to, to, to give any, any logical advice to physicians, is that if we find an aspergillus species, there might be 300 of those, or we find a penicillium species, there might be 200 of those. Uh, and and you, find, you find an intact spore, and your comment on fragments was right on, if you find an intact spore, which aspergillus is it? If you've got Aspergillus eustis, I don't really care. If you've got Aspergillus versicolor, I care a hell of a lot. And penicillium, are you really going to be making treatment decisions based on genus level identification? Of course not. There are so many reasons to not do air samples. And yet, when I talk to patients and they've called their friendly uh, mold guy who advertises on the six o'clock news between the ads for cholesterol and the ads for diabetes, you know, they're going to believe that this is the right thing to do. We talked briefly getting started about the ecology of a water-damaged building. Think about it. It's 62 degrees maybe to 78 degrees, maybe a little closer uh, temperature range than that. Year-round, there aren't torrents of wind. There's not torrents of rain. This is not the same as an outdoor environment. There are walls that, that stop where things go. In the outside, the solution to pollution is dilution. And that is an element of of benefit being outside that we don't have inside. So, as you go around this whole area, there is a need for the molecular methods that we have in our toolbox that are readily available now, that are inexpensive, that are reliable. For years, it's been one of my concerns that the only thing that was a decent measure. Back to my tape measure idea. The only decent measure was fungal DNA. But fungal DNA is representing a small fraction of the microbial contamination in this ecosystem inside a wet building. Now that we have endotoxin analysis, and remember, endotoxins are coming from bacteria, uh, both in, in virobiomics and, and uh, in, in mycometrics do endotoxin, I believe. But more importantly, now that we can get filamentous bacteria, actinomycetes, analyzed, I don't know if, if Kente has, has done that yet. Uh, or, or he started, hasn't
1: he? No, the research is in the infancies. I, yeah, he's, he's looking at a, a narrower band of of, of gram-positive uh, bacteria that he feels are, are soil-based. But everyone has their feelers out trying to find out where we're going to be able to hook that fish where maybe ERMI or Hertzme may miss.
2: You know, when when David Larkin and I published that one paper that he presented uh, in some international uh, IAQ Congress out in, in, in Ghent, Belgium, it was looking at reliability of ERMI versus reliability of Hertzme 2 to detect an environment that would be safe for re-exposure, for reoccupancy, And we had a 97% success rate with, Her- with Hurts Me Too. And I was happy with that number. But then what were the other 3%? Was that bacteria that we missed? Was it VOCs we missed? You know, we are going to be pushing this envelope to the next step, which is to say we don't want 97%. We want closer to 99.99. And I think within a year we'll have it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm salivating at the conversation that we briefly had, and I'm going to save for one of the last things we talk about today, which is transcriptomics. The people listening on, on how they can bring awareness, we have so many sources and references um, that they can show, the, show their local clinician or, or physician working with them to open their eyes to this world of
2: CIRS. The one change from our conference time just a couple weeks ago is that we now are starting a program called Proficiency Partners. We have some physicians and healthcare providers who don't really want to take the 40 to 60 hours needed to to get certified uh, in, in working this kind of illness, but do want to know enough to be familiar with it so they can be somewhat of a repository of knowledge for their patients and be a key woodsman, if you will permit me to use that term, to uh, coordinate the journey of the SERS patient trying to find his way through the woods. So we're going to have a lot more people passing a test uh, very soon. It'll be certified by uh, George Washington University. So it does have medical school backup, and, and that's, that's kind of a plus. But the issue is that we need that same kind of person on the non-medical side who's familiar with what do you look at in a water-damaged building. Uh, Larry Schwartz had a wonderful presentation about his uh, building index, his MPI. And that should be available so people can look to see what do they think, what what does Larry think about when he looks at my house? Uh, I, I routinely suggest to Patients that they can take steps on their own, making a map of the walls in their in their home, and and renting uh, for twenty five bucks uh, for an uh, afternoon, a uh, moisture meter, infrared device. They can start looking for water content or underneath windows, around doors, what have you, bottom of of, uh, of wall cavities, that kind of situation. What leaks or what moisture contents do they find in their home that they can do They don't have an IEP license. They don't have a medical license, but they sure can look at a moisture meter, don't you think?
1: Absolutely, and it gets the party started. It leads to the next level of, do we take this to bringing in a professional? But it definitely opens up their eyes without breaking the bank.
2: If it turns out that I get a phone call for someone who wants some help with an illness and they list out, my Hurts Me Too is this, my VCS is this, my NeuroQuant is this, Gosh, we didn't even talk about neuroquant. Oh my God, how do we leave that out? <laughs> the best way in the world talking about brain injury, but the issue is that that informed patient will listen more carefully, have less of a problem with the jargon terms that I use, uh, and and it's parallel to what you guys use. I mean, hyphae and conidia, Who in the hell heard of that? They're not even in crossword <laughs> puzzles. But you know, that's right. We, we need to. We <laughs> sorry. Well, maybe hyphae, but we we need to break through the, the language barrier. We need to recognize that there are things that physician extenders can do and IEP extenders can do that don't require the insurance liability coverage that is onerous for both of our professions. But the issues also come back to how do we let patients know Uh, more about their environment and their illness. Well, it starts with education. But the education gets started with breaking the jargon barrier. So glossaries of terms, sample reports, that kind of thing should be made available. We tried to do that at one time on the website, and not many people were using it. The IEPs were the worst. So hopefully there should be demand for what does an IEP think about looking at a home, what does the physician think about looking at a person and what does the patient, the person think about asking for help from a physician or an IEP? It's a three rings, I guess that's a circus, but it certainly is a mechanism that everybody gets to talk on the same page.
1: Yeah. Wait, and hold on just one second. I'm writing a note to check my report templates to make sure my glossary is up to snuff. But, um, um, <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, yeah. Listen, it, you, you called it in the very beginning uh, when we first got online. There's no way that we'd be able to capture all the different angles and elements of this. But I think the takeaways is that there are ways to get started. There's there's network opportunities. Um, Surviving Mold has so much of education. Not only are there the older medical consensus statement, the IEP consensus statement, but the one just released May, that's this month, 2018, uh, the, di- the new diagnostic module, consensus statement, much broader, much beefier. And um, quite honestly, um, it's really enjoyable to read, especially if you're somebody going through this. This building a network, what I see a lot as an IEP in the field are physicians who work with uh, patients. They don't really know too much about CIRS. And I wanted to take a moment to say what kind of incredible resources are available to uh, the clinician in the field, uh, even the patient who's wanting to learn more about CIRS and its ever-expanding uh, role in, in, well, at least 25% of the population. And there, there are things that are available. Uh, you have, um, well, I wanted to save this one part for last, but you already have a medical consensus statement that's on survivingmold.com. It's for free. You already have the Indoor Environmental Professional Consensus Statement that tries to touch a little bit more about the environment and considerations regarding testing and remedial aspects and things like that. But as of May of 2018, we have the brand new uh, Diagnostic Module Consensus Statement. These are these are um, golden nuggets of information um, to help curve some learning uh, for people who are who are looking to learn more about what CIRS is, the type of role it plays, how it's different from somebody who is complaining about an allergy. Um, And it gets even bigger than that because surviving mold, there's a network of professionals. You can see on the map where there's other people who have gone through the certification process um, um, reviewed by uh, you yourself um, to make sure that they are practicing the protocol and doing it the right way, um, following the data that's been established. And even for the IEP that's out there, uh, this is the individual that that wants to know he's got tools in their tool bucket. We, uh, tool bucket. We've already talked a little bit about VCS testing and how we're starting to use it in the field to look for uh, additional ancillary data um, that maybe can be in turn, shown to the patient or the doctor and show them that there's something going on here. So I guess the point of this is just to say, and if there's anything you'd like to add, there is such a wealth of, of information available to the physician or the IEP who wants to get involved here that there's really no excuse. And it's a lot of this is for free. Uh, it's a great place to start.
2: One of the problems we faced with Surviving Mold as a website is that it grew so rapidly, beginning in 2010 through including 2013, that there are thousands of documents <clears throat> that sometimes appear in areas where we don't expect to find them, and sometimes we don't find them at all. The search bar is is very useful. Uh, if there's uh, a need for more information, the easiest thing to do is to write to the website and just say, look, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. <clears throat> and we apologize for the kind uh, of higgledy-piggledy aspects for some things. Uh, but if you have an interest in, in peer-reviewed published data, and this, this is what I go back to all the time there. There are a lot of groups out there that talk about mold now. Gee, when I got started, it was just me. Uh, but everything I said back then was peer-reviewed and published, and I didn't have a whole lot to say at first. But now that everything that I do say is peer-reviewed and published, and there's a lot to say, simply going to the references in the 2010 consensus statement, the 2015 consensus statement, the 2018 consensus statement, you will be able to see, you being the reader, the, the public, that there is so much material that is there that debunks some commonly made claims and the biggest problem is that the the mole worlds come is becomes sort of like the wild wild west, where you know the six guns are, are shooting and and people are blazing away and the duels aren't aren't very nice. But having said that, there is so much advance of good hard science that someone has questions has problems. We think our resource is there. It might be hard to navigate, but it's there. And a
1: compliment that 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 is that is absolutely right in fact you know I don't know if this is uh, something that I should share about even my own work but you know going years back I I just didn't you base things off of what you knew but you know, it wasn't so common to reference studies that were published, peer-reviewed, independent—the sorts of things that mean everything when you're dealing with something as complicated as CIRS. So, definitely a, a great reference: uh, SurvivingMold.com. There's other things that are—you know—you get into more conversations about the, the science of the home, the building, and there's a bunch of great references out there as well. A good a good uh, website to start is BuildingScience.com. Actually, it's not going to, again, it's not going to tell you everything, um, but it's going to give you some fundamentals. Of the sorts of pathways and driving forces and just the way homes are built um, that you know sometimes make a home uh, a better candidate for a water damage building or source of exposure.
2: Um, we have already published one book of 500 uh, state of the art answers to 500 mold questions. We have a couple follow ups that are a little smaller than that, and so a lot of the questions that people have asked, and these are frequently asked questions, have already been answered in print. Now, for an ebook, they're, they're probably nine or ten dollars, so they're not free. I uh, don't want to be, you know, pushing and shilling for for selling things. But if you're going to be paying thousands of dollars for an investigation, and the answer that you really need is available in in one of five hundred answers for ten bucks, I would go with the ten bucks before five thousand dollars.
1: Absolutely. And I'm a full supporter of, of getting that basic as a education and fundamentals. Uh, for one, you may answer your question. For two, at least you can have a more intelligent conversation and use that information to know whether or not the people you are working with um, are on track or if they seem to be going off the trail, so to speak. And if they are, being able to have somewhat of an intelligent conversation um, to move forward. I wanted to change gears. Go ahead.
2: Okay. There's just one more point, and that's that's such an important point. You know, you hear terms, I guess, from the government uh, empowerment and and all this. The patient is looking at an industry he may not know too much about, uh, and some of the questions that are important, I think, for example, a patient may be able to say to a potential remediation specialist or a contractor, Do you use Hurts Me Too or Earning? If the guy says, no, I never use those, And then the next question is, well, is there a reason you don't since there's good published peer-reviewed literature that shows they're very effective in use in remediation protocols? And the person still says, no, no, no. It's time to think about getting to someone who does know state-of-the-art.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point, and it ties into what we were speaking about earlier when we talked about the differences between kind of the EPA understanding of ERMi and where there's a lot of misunderstanding it's one thing to educate it's quite another for somebody who's hardlining an approach that may not serve what the research is suggesting in other words you know it hurts me in an ERMi through the eyes of the shoemaker protocol and the interpretation isn't the end all but it's the only metric that is correlated with data there's no other type of sampling that's going to correlate with currently with current exposure and while that may change tomorrow it's not The case today, and so that's that's a great point that you make. Um, There, the couple quick Q and A's. I know we're starting to get um, um, tied up here at the end, and I wanted to talk a quick about things I hear in the field. I wanted to hear your opinion Um, as it relates to comments. I'm just going to throw it at you. We hear about mycotoxins. Um, This is a component of mold. Um, We know it's a, a secondary metabolite. We we understand some about it, but from my standpoint uh, as an iep i think the the concern is do you see uh a a value in collecting um uh, let's start with field data there's a way to collect dust samples there's a way to collect uh, bulk samples i've done it in the past the problem i'm having in the field so it's a two-parter here the first part is that it's really hard right now to interpret it you know what's normal background levels and and if it's not present does that always does that mean that you must not have a problem because there's not mycotoxins i'm i'm setting myself up for a trap here and then the second component is is can it can it be used in uh, from the physician standpoint if someone's out there collecting uh, dust samples and they're getting mycotoxin results back does through the eyes or the lens of CIRS is that data valuable uh, i'd like to get your opinion on that
2: in 2003 the state of the art in mold litigation was a decision called Getkin out of California that said, there must be demonstration of mycotoxins in the, uh, the affected environment, the one that's being thought to be causative of illness, that match what's found in the human body. And that that idea held sway. And uh, There's a big uh, appeal of a decision from Ohio that that the attorney representing my, my patient lost, I guess I lost too, because we hadn't shown mycotoxins, and the real difficulty with that assessment is that if you use mass spectrometry or liquid chromatography, you can get accurate depiction of mycotoxin burden, but that would be in a a freshly voided or frozen urine specimen. Antibody testing has never been shown to be specific, and a lot of the tests that I see people running for hundreds of dollars are antibody tests. They... Uh, admittedly in the literature, are are polyclonal, which means there's many different things that can turn them on. So if we're looking for specific compounds to be causes of illness, we need specific assays. But a larger point is that we need to show mycotoxin effects in people, not just presence in urine. There are literally hundreds of studies in the world's literature looking at control patients or people that are healthy following a diet that is recorded for the for the test, and then looking at mycotoxins appearing in urine, and it happens all the time. And specific assays can be developed. For example, there are 18 different kinds of ocrotoxin whose some of the congeners will appear in urine. Some are known to be harmful, some are not. But if someone says, well, I have ocrotoxin in my urine, which one is it? Which of the 18? And these the ocrotoxins can be present for up to 60 days following consumption of a single uh, bread meal. And it's it's discouraging to think that a nonspecific test collected inappropriately at some unknown time could relate to causation of illness. Instead, by looking at the transcriptomics, the gene activation, well, good peer-reviewed literature tells us what mycotoxins can do. So if we look for those things that mycotoxins can do, and find them, we've got real good evidence that not only the exposure has occurred, but also injury has occurred. It's like the idea of someone is is going outside in the sun on a warm warm, summer day in Maryland, uh, and they have sunscreen on. Well, they can be out for possibly a good long time, maybe on the beach, and not get a sunburn. Other people, without some protection, go out and they get a terrible sunburn. So exposure to the sun can be helpful to making you feel good and not harmful with a sunburn. But other people, it's harmful and then causes a sunburn. Mycotoxins are about the same way. Just because you're exposed doesn't mean we know what the health effects are. So I really discourage mycotoxin testing uh, based on on antibody testing is, 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 is the initial step. But now that we have data on literally hundreds of patients with transcriptomics, Mycotoxin exposure causing harm is actually quite rare. And flash backwards to 2002, I don't think I would have been saying that thing because back then it was state-of-the-art that mycotoxins were the cat's meow. GEF can change things in 2003. And now we know that people can be exposed and not initiate the gene problems. And if they do initiate gene problems, they don't last for more than two weeks. So there's, multiple different layers to say why mycotoxin testing, as it is available in the US uh, on a research basis, needs to be uh, thought about twice. Certainly on a commercial basis, uh, whomever is marketing those tests has got to answer the CDC somewhere along the way. The uh, Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report in 2015 gave a very clear statement that uh, any mycotoxin testing from antibodies uh, is not validated to be monoclonal or just one thing will turn it off it is confounded by by dietary influences uh, and it has not been approved by any agency uh, as an fda cleared test so those those things go strongly to mycotoxins now against that has been the rise of understanding and here some of the other ieps have been you know kind of beating the drum for a long time about endotoxins or bacterial toxins We see bacterial toxin effect in genomics in about 75 to 80 percent of known cases. We don't see mycotoxin or endotoxin effects in non exposed cases. Control patients don't have that, for example. Uh, And other people with with CIRS from a different source don't have it. So we're, we're looking at a kind of turning on the paradigm. You have fungi that can be identified, we can see them, we can smell actinomycetes, no, we're not not smelling fungi, Uh, and we can do speciation, I mean, hurts me too, we're fine, but they're only telling us about a marker for exposure. Actual marker for illness is gene activation that we can then show is corrected by therapy. So as we move forward with the basic science, I mean, who could imagine 15 years ago talking about looking at correction of differential gene activation as a bedside test. Well, it is now. It's, it's remarkable that the IEPs are being asked to keep up with what the physicians can't keep up with, and the physicians are supposed to be the ones that know what they're talking about. <laughs>
1: well, and transcriptomics was something that I was admittedly introduced to formally at the recent conference in uh, Maryland, and um, it, it really was exciting because I, I don't want to you know hang my neck out over a limb here but it it was suggesting a lot of things first of all it it was admittedly presented as a growing uh, science in that what we're learning we're trying to catch up but you have this thing uh basically where genes um upregulate or downregulate they they respond to an environment and based off of uh, case studies controls and whatnot you're starting to see behaviors um of, of upregulation downregulation and other things that are well beyond me and what's exciting about that is it's it, it, it almost felt like from an IEP where I started salivating is it's like a fingerprint it's a it's a it's like it's saying this is what's unique about this individual and what I was hoping is is that one day as another tool and I don't know if I'm 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 uh, not serving the the word transcomics uh transcriptomics appropriately by saying that but to be able to look at it one day work with the physician and say Can you tell by their transcriptomics, their gene expression, if we should be focusing on endotoxins, if we should be focusing on X, Y, or Z contaminants? What does the future look like to you?
2: By combining what we know about the wet building ecology and looking at water saturations, and AW is not just uh, root beer, it is the critical issue in what is going to grow. If you find... Evidence of a lot of mycotoxin effect, we ha- we are forced to say, where did it come from? Now, my endotoxin testing has been um, very poorly available, and in, in, in my mind, over the years, uh, there are two current labs that, that are developing uh, these these tests on, on a day to day commercial basis, uh, and I'm delighted that that both mycometrics and Envirobiomics, neither one of which are I have any interest in? I have no conflicts, for example. But each one of these companies is now breaking the glass ceiling that said mycotoxins and and fungal exposure was the only thing that mattered. As we get more refined in our analysis of actinomycetes, we are going to be able to look at a third element because one of the most dominant features that we see in patients sickened by water-damaged buildings is injury to protein production in ribosomes. And then mitochondria, now let's be careful here, mitochondrial genes are absolutely represented in our own genome. And our own genome makes the proteins that mitochondria need to function. And those own proteins that we make have to be taken in across an outer membrane, then an inner membrane to the mitochondria. If they're not delivered, the mitochondria don't work right. The most common cause for lack of delivery is lack of production through injury by inflammation to the nuclear encodation process of of mitochondrial genes that are encoded into our own DNA. So by blaming mitochondrial function and using compounds like CoQ10, people are saying, we think this is a problem. They don't know there's about 10 or 12 different CoQs. 10 is only one of them that does make a difference, but the real issue, it's nuclear transcription factor control of mitochondrial function that creates the illness, not mitochondrial disease. And guess why CoQ10 doesn't work very well? If it's part of a problem, it's a small part. We're learning every day through transcriptomics, and now that we're looking at (coughs) the findings that about a month or so from now, the transcriptomic test will be distilled from a very expensive test of about $2,000 down to one that will probably be around $350, $400. Suddenly, a mandatory test full of incredible information will be available at an affordable price.
1: This is incredible because it changes the way that we look at people. I mean, we certainly weren't having this conversation in the mid to late 90s and where we're at today and how we can help people in a cost-effective manner. Um, it's, it's, it's a good feeling to be able to, to, you know, because some of the science that's out there is pretty nifty and all that, but it comes with a hefty price tag. So to be able to tie things in and continue learning and, and with transcriptomics and where it will take us tomorrow uh, in field assessments. Um, honestly, I, I think that you just, I think you just tipped the iceberg. I think that there's so much more that we have yet to discover.
2: When we have gene activation of clusters of differentiation that tell us that beta-glucans are activating cell functions, it's going to become imp- incumbent on whole IEP to be able to show where beta-glucans are and get rid of them and where they aren't and not spend money on needless uh, remediation when they're not there. It is, it is taking this stew, this chemical stew, the mixture, where there is no specific causation, that's been the that's the idea that kind of got rid of Gefkin is that it's not just mycotoxins, it's a whole series of inflammatory things. And I feel that our group's work has been pretty important in making that change. But as we as we look at separating out thirty or thirty-two different things to set off inflammation, as shown in the 2015 medical consensus on the homepage of Surviving Mold. Look at where we've come since then. We can not only identify some elements specifically, beta-glucans we can identify, endotoxins we can identify, mycotoxins we can identify, actinomycetes we think we can identify, but there are other elements that are causing inflammation by disrupting how cells programmed to live and then programmed to die are not dying right. They're not dying being folded up into a shroud and put six feet under, figuratively. What's happening is that these cells are dying, releasing their particulate material, their DNA, their ribosomes, what have you, as free-floating inflammation-activating compounds found in blood. We will be talking about water damage building and blood microparticles. Uh, before long. And blood microparticles and defective apoptosis, boy, how about that for a, a buzzword nobody's <laughs> heard of, that's going to be part of the common parlance.
1: I, I heard a rumor that there may be a, a conference uh, coming up in uh, January 2019. Is that a little premature on my part, or can you, uh, can you elaborate?
2: I, I think that my conversations with Greg Weatherman and Marsha Cash is that not only is the conference going to take place in, in Fort Lauderdale, I believe it's January 16 through 19. I'll have to double check those. But that, that, that uh, Thursday through Sunday uh, are the dates. It's going to be held next to the uh, cruise ship departure area. So there's a lot of things to do and restaurants to, to, to look at. But this is the first conference that I know of uh, and Surviving Mold is not running this. This is this is separate. Um, this is the first conference to bring together, I think the, the, their term is meeting of the minds, some medical information, but as opposed to past conferences that Surviving Mold has had, where it was probably 75% medical and 25% IEP, now it's going to be about two-thirds IEP and one-third medical. This is going to be a switch because some of the top IEP people uh, are, are going to be present. Now, I understand there is a. a, a I don't know if I've talked to you about this or not, but one of the keynote address proposals was for you and I to have a um, kind of crossfire, go back and forth for our dinner meeting. You up for it?
1: Yeah, I'm not. That doesn't scare me. I think that's exciting.
2: It it would be reasonable to start with people that share a point of view to bring in the audience, to bring out some, some differing opinions. But short of government institutions where people are brought in and there, there may be some control on who's invited and who isn't, this is gonna be the first private conference that I know of where basically for an affordable period of time and a nice place in, in winter time, there's gonna be ideas on the table and defend against criticism. Now, the criticism is not going to be physical abuse and screaming at each other like we see on (laughs) CBS News at night. It's going to be cordial, professional, but also, I think, very productive.
1: And just to clarify, you said private, but do you know if this will be open to, say, other IEPs that would like to attend and be a part of this?
2: What I meant is private as opposed to governmental. It it won't be a, a... Sponsor it, but it's going to be first come first serve i understand there's only about 185 seats i got it
1: well for those of you who are listening especially the ieps needless to say if you can make that trip out there it's worth every penny i mean even just the education that you're going to get alone is you you you're not going to be able to be injected with that kind of information such in a, such an efficient manner and be around the people who have done the research who can who can tie or connect the dots where maybe you understand one part uh, and you don't understand another and you're, you're just looking to uh, connect these dots where it's a difficult world working with people in the field and trying to understand how do I prioritize my assessment approach? How do I, how do I um, provide the type of data that the client needs? But also is useful for the physician who is following a protocol for diagnosis and treatment. So it'll be an amazing opportunity. Probably going to be able to find more information uh, on survivingmold.com um, or some other site in the near future. Um, I'll try to post something on this podcast uh, if that changes. And um, I wanted to say in closing, um, Doctor Shoemaker, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you today, and I hope that the audience has learned a lot about the world of CIRS. Um, what's out there on the horizon, transcriptomics, um, the science and methodology behind it. And honestly, it's, it's been a pleasure being a part of uh, the group. Um, being a part of Surviving Mold has really been, more than anything, a, a learning opportunity for me. It's opened my eyes to uh, the world of chronic exposure versus acute. And it is, it is a very satisfying feeling to go out there and work with people who, for um, a significant part of their life, Um, have not found answers, have been sick, have have been in a depressing state, have felt loss. This has been one of the biggest goosebump experiences I've been a part of. So thank you, Dr. Shoemaker, for all you've done and taking the time to speak with us today.
2: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to speak to you and a privilege to appear on your show. Call me again sometime.
0: of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.